Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century Podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by DJ Nordquist, who is the Executive Vice President of the Economic Innovation Group, a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and is former U.S. Executive Director of the World Bank. Welcome, DJ. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. DJ, I want to first get into how you first got interested in economics. You were a Stanford undergrad. You did your master's at Northwestern. You've worked in a variety of roles in D.C., in Congress, two administrations. You've worked across several of D.C.'s top think tanks, Cato, Brookings, CSIS. How did your interest in policy all start? Uh, I sort of fell into uh, being an econ nerd. Um, I, uh, ironically, the only class I took pass fail uh, at Stanford was econ one, econ 101, because I was like afraid of it. Um, and I really wish I'd taken it for a grade, <laughs> paid more attention. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I did, you know, a master's at Northwestern. Uh, I was planning to go into documentary filmmaking. Uh, and I ran into um, a Stanford um, law professor um, who became a member of Congress actually on the Metro in DC, which was my last quarter at Northwestern. Um, and he had actually, he was uh, currently a sitting member of Congress and he was uh, running for Senate, uh, Tom Campbell, I'm dating myself. Um, and I had actually covered him when I was a reporter for the Stanford Daily and um, he recognized me right away and we sat down and we talked and he said, you know, you should go work on Capitol Hill. And I was like, oh God, no. Um, but anyway, uh, make a long story short, um, he, uh, you know, arranged for me to meet with his chief of staff. She gave me some advice about like working on the Hill. And so that's sort of how I ended up working on the Hill. Uh, so that was sort of my first taste of, you know, policy slash politics. Um, and then, you know, I, I lived overseas, uh, for about six years, worked in the private sector, um, and, uh, and then came back and, you know, had really wanted to work at a think tank. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, went into think tank world and then uh, ended up serving uh, in a number of domestic policy roles um, at the Department of Education. Uh, I was at FDIC. Um, I worked on uh, Hurricane Katrina, which was basically uh, attached to the White House. And then my last domestic uh, uh, piece of the tour was at HUD. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, yeah, so anyway, that's, and then, uh, ended up at Brookings in economic policy studies, which was, um, you know, I had come from really like the domestic policy side, but economic policy is, you know, really more macro, micro, econ, uh, you know, monetary policy as well. And, um, so that's when I, you know, really learned a lot more about, um, academic, uh, you know, academic economics and, and that, that side of the house. Uh, and I really loved it and just nerded out reading lots of, you know, peer reviewed academic papers. <laughs> Many of our listeners love reading peer reviewed academic papers, myself included. Now, most recently, um, you served as U.S. executive director at the World Bank. Can you explain to our audience what the role of a country executive director at the World Bank does? Like in, in particular, like you know, the, the U.S. executive director, you know, how you work alongside Office of International Affairs officials at Treasury and, and officials at the State Department, like how are World Bank projects like voted on? What are the typical uh, sorts of projects 
facts that that come through? The World Bank, um, uh, probably maybe some people don't know this, is actually part of the UN system. But unlike, you know, at the UN in New York, uh, where every country has a vote and a seat around that U-shaped, I think it's U or maybe it's uh, semicircle, uh, full circle at, uh, up in, in New York, um, at the General Assembly, the World Bank is done by shareholding, and so there are only 25 seats um, around the, the table. It's, it's a U. Um, and uh, those 25 seats are the executive directors, and they represent 189 countries. Um, and so I was very fortunate in that, um, you know, of the 25 board seats, only six or seven, depending on how you count, are what are called single constituencies, meaning I just represented one country. Um, whereas, like, the person who sat next to me was the Mexican executive director, and he represented, you know, seven countries. Um, uh, you know, the Africans, one of the Africans had 23 countries in his constituency, the other one had 22, uh, the other one had three. So it's a complicated, you know, formula based on shareholding, which is how much your country, you know, has put in uh, to the bank by various uh, measures. Um, and, um, yeah, so, uh, anyway, so you're literally sitting at like, you know, what everybody sees on TV when they look at like the general assembly, like, you know, a bunch of people sitting around a table and there are a lot of flags in the room, you know, so I'm sitting there and I've got, you know, the United States on my tent card. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember like when I, my, my first board meeting, I was like really intimidated because you sit there and you think, wow, I am representing my country, just me. <laughs> like, what if I make a mistake? <laughs> it's much smaller than like UN, like General Assembly. When, when you think about that picture of the UN General Assembly, it's like, right. you know, there's every country is represented as one country, one vote. So right. you know, it's like 200 some odd countries. Here, it's like only 25 people or so. But it's still a pretty big imposing uh, room and there's still a lot of staff in the room and all that. And it's, I mean, it's basically, even though there are fewer people, it's the same number of countries represented. It's just done by shareholding and, I was lucky because being an American, the U.S. is the you know largest shareholder, so I had more weight uh, to throw around. Uh, but and there's the, a the lot U.S. Of, gives the most money. Uh, to, yes, the, the U.S. gives the most it. most money. There are other things that go into the shareholding formula based on GDP, based on other contributions to the bank. There are different parts of the bank. There are five or six different parts of the bank. Um, so yeah, so the U.S. is the largest shareholder. Um, you know, obviously the U.S. and the U.K. were the ones who came up with the idea of the Bretton Woods institutions, you know, after World War II to help rebuild, you know, the war-torn economies of, of Europe. Uh, and so the U.S. and the U.K. used to be the two largest shareholders. Right after the Second World War, right. uh, Henry Dexter White, John Maynard Keynes had, had a big influence in that um Right. It was a conference sort of up in New Hampshire. And it's now yeah, fun, fun fact about uh, Dexter White is, um, you know, he was a communist. <laughs> communist sympathies and, you know, I think was investigated and all that stuff. So that was that was our guy. <laughs> so, mm. um, and, and another fun fact is, you know, one of the um, uh, one of the first loans to come out of the bank was to France. Again, you know, you got to go go in the you know the way back machine uh you know france is trying to rebuild after you know world war ii and um you know there was uh, what's called conditionality uh big word at the big fancy word at the bank which is like conditions are attached to whatever the loan is 
And they, I can't even remember what the loan was for, but the conditionality attached to that loan was that uh, the communists uh, were not allowed to be part of the government, the, the coalition uh, in France. Otherwise, they weren't going to get this World Bank loan. Um, I cannot imagine that would ever happen today. <laughs> the bank is supposed to be apolitical. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, there are a lot of messy politics out there. There are 189 countries and, you know, all of them have different issues, uh, some more than others. So, uh, but anyway, getting back to your question about like, you know, uh, so the main, the, the, the main function of the board is, you know, oversight. Um, you know, it's an accountability mechanism. That's another, uh, bank phrase, although technically it's not considered an accountability mechanism, but um, it's really, um, you know, projects. So these are either loans or grants um, come up through staff. Uh, staff meet with, you know, the various sovereigns uh, and the sovereigns say, I'd really like, you know, a bridge between, you know, my two islands and the Maldives. And the bank will study it and be like, well, okay, or well, no, we don't think that's a good idea. It doesn't make economic sense. But anyway, when the when the staff says yes, it goes through like a two year, you know, sort of project preparation, you know, lots of due diligence, et cetera, et cetera. And then and working with the sovereign and then it goes to the board for a vote. Um, and so I think one of the things that surprised me when I got there was that almost every project that comes to the to the board gets approved. <laughs> and I thought like my vote actually like it was a real vote. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, it's not uh, when there's a project that is controversial, um, uh, which does not happen very often, but once in a while there is one. Uh, if it's going to be voted down, management just um, pulls the vote. So you never know what happened. Uh, you don't know. You basically don't know that this project existed. But the World uh, Bank president uh, in this case. So at, at the time, like, say, David Malcolm. No, no. It's, I mean, it's the staff. The staff will, you know, senior staff will pull um, the project down. So uh, I I managed to defeat um, one project in my time there. I mean, I certainly voted against a lot of them. Uh, you know, I actually was the first U.S. executive director to vote against or abstain every single project that went to China because I thought China should not be taking World Bank loans. It should have graduated from the World Bank years ago, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I did. I did manage to stop what I considered was a BRI project, uh, and uh, that you know, getting the Europeans. If you tell them it's a BRI project, they actually don't care. Uh, I had. What is use, a BRI project? Sorry, Belt and Road Initiative, China. Belt and Road Initiative. Got it. So, so I, I guess, like, just uh, you know, for clarification to our listeners, so like the IMF and World Bank, you know, they're, they're created right after uh, the, the Second World War. They sort of, I think, evolved a bit in terms of their purpose. Obviously, there was a, a big part uh, of, of its early life was you know, managing the actual you know fixed exchange rate system, um, you know, which was. You know, very complicated. That broke down 50 years ago, 1973. And, and, and then the main sort of focus of the World Bank, IMF Burnwood institutions has been on uh, basically development aid um, and, and concessional lending um, to some debt issues. And typically, like I think the World Bank does a lot of the work on sort of development aid, working with poor countries, whereas the IMF works on more of the um, concessionary lending to um, countries, which may be a little bit more developed, but are running into these sort of sovereign yeah. issues. Um, I mean, I would, I sort of, I sort of think of it as like macro and micro, right? So like IMF is dealing with, you know, financial and economic stability and, you know, sort of larger uh, economic issues, uh, you know, 
versus the World Bank, um, you know, these are more like, we need a bridge, we need a road, we need an energy, you know, source, we need housing, we need, you know, better human capital, better schools. Um, so it's, it's more um, focused on what the, you know, sort of specific, like you said, like specific development needs, uh, you know, versus the IMF is more of a like, if your if your economy is in free fall, <laughs> we will we will give you a lifeline, but we will you know there's conditionality involved as well. So, so with the World Bank, not necessarily. Um, so some aid is is maybe unconditional. Some is conditional in, in the sense that you know it has to be paid back. Targets that, that have to be hit. One of the big I guess developments uh, in recently with the World Bank has been you know, whether China should continue to receive World Bank aid or not. And, and the one thing uh, that you're sort of alluding to before is that you know it's, you know GDP per capita is well above every other World Bank aid recipient country. And critics allege that you know, China takes, say, a 0% World Bank uh, you know, loan or 0% financing and lends it out to various projects, you know, Belt and Road Initiative type projects, earning a spread, almost like a hedge fund would. Yeah. Um, and then it's receiving- And it's a good deal if you can get it, right? right. Who wouldn't take that deal? <laughs> Exactly. And, I mean, I'll, I'll correct you. It's not, they don't get, it's not zero. It's not zero percent. It's um, what well, it used to be pegged to LIBOR, uh, so for now, I guess. Um, and there's concessional and non-concessional rates. Uh, and so, you know, China is not getting the rock bottom rates that they used to. Um, you know, I have been told by, you know, staff at the bank that, China doesn't actually need to take, you know, World Bank money that they could do better on the markets. And so my response was, then why are they taking World Bank money? <laughs> because every dollar that they take is one dollar that doesn't go to Africa. And in fact, you know, between IBRD and, you know, IFC, that's, you know, the main part of the bank and the private sector part of the bank. I mean, they're taking about two billion dollars a year uh, in loans. And like you said, like <laughs> they've got a nice spread. They turn around and lend it out to, you know, other countries and then, you know, basically it's debt draft diplomacy, countries that, you know, can't pay, can't pay them back. Uh, and then, you know, in some cases like the port in Sri Lanka, China will seize the asset. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I mean, there, there actually is, uh, there, uh, the OECD laid out pretty good criteria for, um, you know, what they thought bank graduation should be. Uh, and so, you know, GDP per capita is, is one of the measures. And then another measure is like whether you have sort of strong institutions, uh, and I would venture to say that uh, China's got some pretty strong institutions. Uh, they rule that country with an iron fist. Uh, and that also you have banking liquidity, like a decent banking system, right, which obviously China does, too. So, I mean, China definitely should graduate. Um, you know, in addition to the the two billion that they're taking, they also get the lion's share of World Bank procurement. So, like, you know, say there's some kind of school project in you know Wagadougou, more times than not, it's somewhere between thirty and forty percent. Uh, the contract to build the school uh, is going to a Chinese firm, and so like if you count up what they're getting in procurement, which is you know, nothing to sneeze at. Uh, and then in addition to the 2 billion, like they're definitely getting a whole lot more than they put in. So like China turns around, they invest a lot of money in Africa. They also do a, a lot of work 
like around the world uh, to influence various countries to go alongside them. Like, how does that dynamic work in the sense that you're, you know, sort of this vote against a number of these, you know, Belt and Road Initiative projects? How does China's influence work in, in these sorts of settings? Like, it, it, it's so amazing to me how how long it's taken like, for there to be this realization that, you know, maybe China's taking advantage of World Bank financing. And I, I know it's something that David Mao passed both when he was under Secretary for International Affairs at Treasury and, and World Bank President, something that he took on was to uh, transition China uh, to try and uh, no longer be an aid recipient country. But I'm curious, like, how does that dynamic work with other countries? So uh, one thing I should add on, on graduation, and this gets to your question about how does you know China influence. Uh, so graduation, even though I laid out these three criteria, which, you know, they're OECD criteria, I think they're widely recognized as those are the right criteria um, to uh, graduate from the World Bank. Uh, has to be, uh, you know, you have to sort of nominate yourself to graduate, right? So countries get to decide if they want to graduate or not. So China, <laughs> China has not nominated itself to graduate, um, you know, and there are other countries uh, that have graduated, you know, from the World Bank, like South Korea is a really good example. Um, there's, you know, uh, countries in the Caribbean. Uh, there's a Singapore. I mean, there's a decent list of countries that that have graduated over time. Uh, and, you know, I think at least once a week, I would, you know, give a speech at the board about how graduation was something to aspire to. Uh, and that it's like the gold star. Congratulations. You've made it into like the developed world club. Uh, and uh, basically, I was aiming that at China. <laughs> Uh, but they're they're going to continue to to take loans. Interestingly, I learned that the Asian Development Bank has made a policy, and I don't know how it was decided or whether it was voted on, but they are not going to give China any more loans coming out of the ADB. So good for them. <laughs> At the same time, of course, China started its own development bank, the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, AIIB, which the United States chose not to participate in because it's basically run by you know, the CCP. So they're, they're competing with the World Bank and they get a lot of business through AAIB and then also bilaterally through you know, their XM Bank and through the China Development Bank. Um, and like, as you said, they're going into these African countries. And a lot of the time, my my belief is that these countries would rather work with the World Bank um, or the U.S. Um, bilaterally. But the World Bank says, we don't think that's a good project or we don't like fossil fuels, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then China just swoops in right after and they're like, oh, you want to build a coal plant? We can do that for you. We'll give you the loan. We're going to bring in all of our own workers and all of our own technology. <laughs> uh, and so you're seeing that, you know, all over the global south. Uh, and, you know, China, even domestically, China is continuing to build coal. I mean, they're permitting, uh, you know, two new coal plants a week. So, I mean, that's sort of my climate change hat. Um, I won't, I don't know if we have time to get into that, but, you know, I, if, if, uh, if you want to do something about climate change, like, you know, China, China has to, um, has to play ball and they're not. <laughs> so, I mean, there was just a recent Australian study that came out that said, you know, uh, I think it was the U S and Europe that we had cut our greenhouse em greenhouse gas emissions. I think something like 5%, uh, while China had increased theirs, I think 12%. So like we, we can't cut uh, enough to make up for them. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, it, I, I feel like it's become such a, a lightning rod issue uh, in, in sort of these climate Paris climate talks and, 
Um, also, uh, obviously, the World Bank in recent years has stepped up to try and make uh, climate uh, a priority in, in its own uh, agenda. Uh, but at some level, if it you know, truly is a global commitment to reducing carbon emissions, and carbon emissions have been falling in the US uh, and in, in other developed countries, while in China and elsewhere, it's, it's been rising pretty substantially. And even though they've made these promises to commit to start reducing emissions by 2060, it, it's so far out, barely seems credible. I'm just curious, like on the topic of, of China, I'm curious, how do you see the rise of China influencing global affairs in the coming future? There's a, a few things that we haven't really talked too much about, namely, you know, say trade, you know, US-China decoupling has become a serious you know, topic in terms of you know, trade relations. You know, this, they've been influenced uh, you know, since the Trump administration, you know, something that's continued through the Biden administration, you know, everything from uh, tariffs on down, you know, have concerns about how uh, American manufacturing sector has been impacted. You know, this is famously um, described in uh, the China Syndrome paper that, that looks at the labor market impacts of increased imports from China. Um, also, you know, we've seen things like you know human rights abuses, the Uyghurs. You know, we've seen the national security law in Hong Kong overturn the rule of law there yeah. in 2020, and, and now there are serious questions about whether China will invade Taiwan. And, and then there's all the you know now these questions about um, semiconductors. H- how do you see the, the future of U.S.-China relations? So, I mean, they're pretty low right now. Uh, I thought it was interesting, and perhaps I, I missed it, but I think she met with Kissinger, but didn't meet with Kerry. <laughs> uh, but we did have like a parade of, we had, uh, you know, Blinken went, and then Yellen went, and then Kerry and Kissinger went. Um, and so, you know, I think- This is all in recent weeks, in, in yeah, like, so, well, you summer know, 2023 I, I, here. Right. We've definitely made an effort to go over there. I am, uh, I mean, I'm a China watcher, but I wouldn't call myself a China expert, but I did live in Asia uh, when I was younger. And, you know, I think sort of our sending a parade of officials there, you know, it sends a very bad signal. <laughs> like we, we look pretty desperate. Um, well, I so, think it's the first time since maybe like 2018 or, or maybe even earlier, maybe 2017 or so since there, there have been U.S. officials going over there, including, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, cabinet level officials. I, I know the CIA director went there recently too. Yeah. It seems like a, a potential sign of relations. At, at, yeah, except our military, the military guys aren't talking to each other. And like of all the parade of officials, like those are the ones I really actually do want, like I more important than everything else. Like, I would really like the military guys to have open lines of communication, and they don't, and that uh, that does scare me. Okay, um, particularly as there's you know military exercises in South China Sea and, and Taiwan Straits that you know, China's uh, organizing, all, all very concerning. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, I'm worried. Uh, you know, I think the Biden administration has you know continued uh, the Trump administration policies. Um, you know, I think the U.S. Uh, went through this period. I mean, I think it sort of started where we thought if we let China into the WTO and we started this strategic economic dialogue in the Bush administration, that it was like if if we open up and if we sort of uh, have more interaction with them they will naturally become more democratic and more capitalistic. Uh, and uh, I think, unfortunately, that that is not the way it has turned out. And I think nobody really, it, it's hard that like, basically, we had a strategy, and we just have to accept, you know, that it didn't work. And I actually got in an argument with my French colleague once at the World Bank about this, because I was like, I said, you know, we tried that. <laughs> like, like, we've done that. I don't know why you guys are still trying to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a difficult situation. Like, you know, they changed the terminology from decoupling to de-risking. Um, you know, I think that that's probably right. I mean, there, you know, there are some things we're going to want to continue to trade with, with China. I mean, trade in general is, is good for, you know, uh, it's good welfare economics, right? Um, you know, the issue is we don't want them, you know, controlling entire supply chains for things that we care about, you know, like, obviously, like a lot of high tech stuff, um, green, uh, that that is you talked about sort of the human rights issues. I mean, I, I said when I was at the bank, you know, your your human rights agenda is running, you know, headfirst into your green agenda, because all of the green energy that the bank is purchasing is coming from all the Uyghurs, right? That's where, you know, Xinjiang is where all the, you know, all of the this stuff is, you know, the solar panels are manufactured, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, do you care more about human rights? Or do you care more about green? Because like, I'm not sure you can do both. Um, and I, I do think the bank is struggling with that. And they're trying to figure out like how to monitor the supply chain. I mean, is it to the point where you do like a Kimberly process, like with diamonds? Like, I don't know that anybody can do that. I don't know that China's going to ever open up their books. You know, there was a, a big scandal when I was at the bank uh, where uh, it was a 2015 project. It was before I had gotten there where it was, um, and I'm not, I'm not kidding, vocational education uh, in Xinjiang. <laughs> uh, and, you know, shockingly, <laughs> the project went awry, which the bank didn't even know there was a whistleblower um, who came forward. It was all over like the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it was determined that, uh, well, the whistleblower showed evidence that the, you know, the the Chinese government was taking World Bank funds and not using it for, I mean, Lord only knows what kind of vocational education they were doing, but they were procuring, you know, barbed wire and riot gear and, you know, that kind of stuff. And obviously that wow. was not the intent of the project, nor would the World Bank ever fund anything like that. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. To, to just uh, uh, further, um, you know, oppress the uh, the Uyghur population in Xinjiang. I mean, that's incredible. Um, and and uh, I mean, you know, th- thankfully, uh, the, there was a whistleblower that stood up and, and, and made that clear. But the crazy thing about it was, you know, I said, well, obviously, we need to stop dispersing on the project. And under World Bank rules, it's the sovereign that has to ask to stop disbursement. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, what's in the loan covenant? Like, it's our money. How come we, you know, and, and China did. Uh, they did stop it. They did ask for the end of disbursement. But at that point, I think 42 out of 50 million had already been dispersed. And they wanted to go away. They didn't want it the headlines, um, you know, but it was just, uh, it was not, it was, you know, pretty bad. <laughs> very, very bad. Unbelievable. Again, uh, why why the bank shouldn't be in China? Like China doesn't need the money. Uh, you, you, you know, the controls obviously are not there all the time. Yeah. The, um, the, the point of what I was saying was, you know, we, the bank sent in like an investigative team and I worked actually closely with the treasury general counsel and, you know, basically China wouldn't let the bank team in for, you know, four weeks. So what could possibly go wrong in the four weeks that they weren't allowed into the country? Uh, you know, and so lo and behold, the books that they saw, you know, that they were, you know, presented were very, very clean. And they took them on literally like, I'm not kidding you, a cultural tour where the bank staff said that they saw some nice dancing and music and <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And I was like, well, did you look for the barbed wire fence? <laughs> and like, well, we're not really, you know, experts in, in that. And I'm like, well, did you think about bringing an expert? I mean, I don't know. I know what barbed wire fence looks like. Um. <laughs> for sure. Wow. 
Now, I'm curious on the topic of semiconductors, and, and certainly, you know, industrial policy is, is uh, something that seems to be you know, back in vogue now. But I'm yes. curious, like, from the perspective of the World Bank, how do topics like industrial policy get discussed? Like, do, do you have any particular thoughts on, you know, say, the, the Chips and Science Act? It's certainly, I think, been a bit of a controversial piece of legislation in the sense that um, you know, th- there's those that uh, that argue that there needs to be you know, subsidies for you know, domestic investment in semiconductors supply chain. But, uh, you know, at the same rate, you know, some people would argue that it's just a, a complete uh, giveaway to, um, to to companies like Intel, some of these chip makers that can't even seem to build fab sites in places like Arizona, because in part, they don't have the skilled labor that they might need. And then on top yeah. of that, too, like, I, I think there's arguments that say that, you know, it's just such an interconnected supply chain to begin with, you know, even China needs inputs from the US to make its semiconductors. And so I, I guess it's it's not as uh, you know one-sided of uh, you know a production chain as as one may think. So I've, I've seen sort of both sides of this issue. I'm, I'm curious where where you come down. So I, I don't think I ever really heard a discussion on industrial policy at the World Bank. Um, I was there like you know 19 to 21, so most of that time was dealing with COVID. Uh, and the debt suspension, the debt sustainability suspension initiative, DSSI, um, you know, which was trying to get China to back off on all these countries that were, you know, in very, very serious debt distress. Um, so, but, you know, I can say like from the U.S. perspective, and I mean, I would say like when I was in the the White House, like we did, we did use the term industrial policy, but it was, it was a bad phrase. It was, you know, a bad thing, which I think Traditionally, that's what most economists think. Uh, and I think that obviously you're seeing, you know, this administration is there were there were parts of the Trump administration that did believe uh, in, in, in industrial policy for um, for national security purposes. And, and I think the Biden administration has taken that ball and run with it and run with it much farther. But then they've also like extended it, like you said, to like, you know, chips um, and, you know, uh, other, you know, other national security issues. I mean, the Bureau of Industry and Security at, at Commerce is now like a super important part of the government. Uh, there was actually a good, I think it was the New York Times piece. I mean, it was, yeah, it was the New York Times document. Like nobody had heard of it before. They're the ones that are doing all the export controls. Uh, and so, you know, obviously the U.S. has had a lot of export controls in the past, but um, we're doing a lot more of them in, in the name of national security. But, you know, I wanted to pick up on your point about, you know, the fabs and the skilled labor. Um, I mean, I, I think this country has like a really uh, big problem with, with um, you know, our, our workforce right now because, as you know, like you need you need people to grow the economy. We've got serious demographic issues um, where, you know, I think was it 21 was the first time we had more deaths than births in the United States. Uh, we're not the only uh, developed country that that's having this problem. And it's been a problem for a while in, in, in Europe. Uh, interestingly, China now has that problem. Uh, and their problem is much worse than ours. Um, Korea uh, is is in big trouble. Uh, I think I saw some estimate, estimate that like by 2060, there's going to be like, maybe I can't remember the exact number, like there's going to be nobody left in Korea. Just, <laughs> um, Japan has had that problem for a long time. So, you know, we've, if we want our economy to grow, if we want to continue to be prosperous, like we, we uh, you know, we need to deal with our demographic challenges. And, you know, you were mentioning skilled labor, like I, I think that they're going to have to bring in uh, some workers because we just don't have enough of the skilled laborers. Uh, And I think that, you know, that is important. Like I, obviously most of the immigration 
oxygen is focused on low skilled labor coming across the border. But I mean, high skilled, you know, we need both, but we definitely need, you know, high skilled labor if we want to, you know, stay competitive with China. And it's fascinating. I think, yeah, I know that um, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, he gave a talk recently on um, what he calls uh, the new Washington consensus at, at the Brookings Institution a few months ago. And it, it's interesting to really wonder, you know, whether all these things, whether it's um, from, uh, say, industrial policy to you know, free trade to, you know, free capital flows, all these things seem to be under sort of a, a, a new lens of thinking amongst many people in DC, obviously not everybody. But I'm, I'm curious on the COVID concessionary lending, um, can you explain a little bit about what the World Bank and IMF was doing during the COVID crisis to to lend to uh, sovereigns that um, you know were, were troubled, you know, particularly in emerging nations? You know, what, what was it that the World Bank was doing um, along with the IMF? So, yeah, I mean, obviously the IMF was doing sort of more direct fiscal injections, you know, into specific, you know, treasury, you know, the treasury and country X or whatever. Uh, the bank did some of that. Um, uh, the bank also funded, like, there was a vaccine facility where uh, they, the bank purchased, you know, from uh, the developing world, since we were the ones that had the vaccine. Uh, and so they would sort of broker the purchase of vaccines for developing countries, um, there was a lot of a lot of projects to like you know increase healthcare capacity you know hospitals doctors nurses equipment you know obviously all the PPE like a lot of money went to purchase PPE pretty crazy times and the bank like most of the world was completely shut down and so we were remote and um, I would uh, I, I struggled because a lot of the job of the executive director is to try to form coalitions, you know, to get votes on your side or to push forward different initiatives. And when you're, when you're not like sitting next to somebody or like seeing them in the hallway, like it's a lot harder to build coalitions. Um, so I, I, I don't think it was a good way for the bank to operate much like the rest of the world. It was just a very difficult uh, working situation, but, you know, the bank did manage to get a lot of money out the door um, and, you know, the vaccine facility was good and, and the bank, I think, worked with Gavi and, you know, a bunch of the other, you know, sort of vaccine organizations to, you know, help, help get, help, you know, help save lives. That's what it came down to. That's fascinating. I mean, what an amazing time to be at the World Bank in in um, in the midst of you know such a um, incredible uh, global crisis and, and global pandemic, one that of that scale hadn't really been seen in uh, in quite uh, some time, in, in almost a century. I'm curious, just pivoting from the World Bank, prior to the World Bank uh, and you becoming executive uh, director, you were Kevin Hassett's chief of staff at the White House Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think um, have been some of the largest sort of economic policy accomplishments of the Trump administration? And I'm curious, I, I also want to ask you a little bit about how you think CEA has evolved a bit, because it, it seems like CEA has sort of been displaced in recent years, sort of by the National Economic Council and, and Treasury Department, particularly uh, since uh, you and Kevin Hassett um, left your post at CEA in the post Kevin Hassett CEA. I think Kevin's kind of like the last CEA chair to have uh, a lot of real influence and a strong relationship with a senior U.S. president. CEA sort of now seems to be sort of largely focused on messaging, putting together charts rather than actually being involved in in policy discussions, CA chair has now been, you know, sort of demoted to a sub cabinet level position. Um, all things that have continued through the Biden administration. I'm curious what your thoughts are on sort of the state of CEA as well. Sure. So um, I'll start with the 
you know, sort of economic accomplishments. I mean, top of the list would be TICSA, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, which was, you know, corporate uh, corporate tax reform and, and also individual uh, tax reform. And part of that were uh, opportunity zones, uh, which is a really interesting piece of legislation. Yeah, I mean, so obviously, like, you know, Kevin, uh, his most of his life's work has been focused on, uh, you know, the impact of corporate taxation on the economy. Uh, and so it's sort of like happened. It was like he was in the right place at the right time. It's very hard to pass tax reform through Congress. It happens like, I, don't know, I think the last time it happened was 86. Uh, and so, I mean, we were involved in a lot of the modeling and, uh, you know, we were we were focused on the economic impact of the corporate side. But, um, you know, what's interesting about CEA is, um, you know, you've got politics and policy. CEA, and this is the same no matter who's in the White House, is is or should be focused on like the optimal policy solution. Uh, and I always used to joke that like you can have like really great policy and then it runs, you know, like, you know, smacks itself into, into politics. Uh, and so with corporate tax reform came individual uh, tax reform, not to say that I'm, you know, that we were against the individual side, but we were more focused on the, you know, the economic, the GDP impact of corporate. And so, uh, you know, those two, those two got married. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, a lot of those, a lot of uh, that bill is uh, expiring in the next couple of years. Um, you know, I think it would be good to extend it. Um, uh, my current uh, job at Econ- Economic Innovation Group, um, does we've done a lot of work on opportunity zones, which is you know an interesting way to get capital that's been sitting on the lo- sidelines, you know, into distressed communities. Um, uh, so it sort of eliminates some of the risk for the private investor to come in and and you know do well by doing good, as, as the expression goes. Uh, and then I'd say you know the other big accomplishment was um, regulatory reform. Uh, you know, CEA was involved in, in measuring a lot of the regulatory reform and, and you know sort of modeling what impact it would have and, and how to shape, uh, you know, shape various pieces of it. And, you know, it's, you know, if you look at the at the statistics, you look at the charts, I mean, the combination of tax reform and regulatory reform, like the economy was doing very, very well until COVID basically knocked it on its ass, if I can say that word. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's fascinating how the, uh, you know, corporate tax rates, uh, you know, certainly like it's never a politically easy thing to do. You know, uh, there's certainly um, a lot of animosity in general toward anything that, you know, is described corporate in, in sort of the political sphere. But, you know, at, at some level, the corporate tax rates were so uncompetitive. At the beginning of the Trump administration, the U.S. had the highest corporate tax rates in the entire OECD. And yeah. you know, there's been this massive, almost some people call race at the bottom in, in terms of just competition for you know the lowest corporate tax rates and and trying to uh, you know avoid corporations from leaving or, or doing inversions or things like that I'm, I'm just like do you have any thoughts on on what's been going on right now in terms of um, uh, sort of the global corporate taxation uh, initiatives that Janet Yellen's led on the US Congress hasn't passed uh, anything to um, give ground on on this um, idea that um, there, there needs to be a global minimum corporate tax rate do you have any particular thoughts on, on that because so, it- um, I'm not a, I'm not a corporate tax expert. I mean, obviously, I've, I've learned uh, as, a, as I've gone. But, you know, Kevin always used to talk about the importance of tax competition. Uh, and that and actually, he used to, it was, in, it's an interesting theory that the EU basically is sort of like creates a monopoly for its member states, right, they can compete with each other. And, you know, that's the same with, with, uh, you know, corporate taxes, as you said, like the US had the highest, you know, corporate tax rate in the developed world. And so there are a lot of loopholes. And, you know, companies were doing these funny things with transfer pricing. And, and I mean, you're still seeing some of that today where, you know, companies, it's 
that's they're going to optimize their tax policy, right? Like they're going to try to pay the least that they can because that's, you know, good shareholder value. Uh, you know, I think it's good to have tax competition. You know, we got beaten. Uh, we we reformed. Uh, we're still not, you know, the lowest. And so, you know, I think Yellen is basically trying to level the playing field uh, in, in corporate taxation. I mean, there's some things in that, you know, OECD regime that make the U.S. like a little bit seems to me subservient to um, to what the EU wants to do. And, you know, I, I think Congress has different ideas about that. So, you know, I think, you know, I, I think the idea is to try to make sure that everybody, quote, pays their fair share. Uh, and certainly there are loopholes in the system that need to be fixed. I'm not sure that this is optimal tax policy. Uh, and I think it's going to really hurt American uh, companies and American competitiveness. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's fascinating to see um, such coordination on, on tax policy, which is, I think, just an almost impossible thing to get such a large group of nations to to agree on um, in, in the respective Congresses. I'm curious, on the top of opportunity zones, where you work now and where you're executive vice president of the Economic Innovation Group played a really significant role in the original conception, original idea right. of opportunity zones, something I think not a lot of people realize, um, something that you know, Senator Tim Scott obviously ran with or was sort of a vehicle to get included in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, yeah. uh, which were passed in the beginning of the Trump administration. I'm just curious, like, in, in terms of some of the evidence so, so far, in terms of, you know, it's still a fairly young policy in terms of just how many years it's been in place. I'm curious, so w- what would you say to the critics that, you know, argue that it's really just a capital gains tax giveaway to real estate developers? Is there a lot of evidence coming in in terms of like outcomes for, you know, up and coming communities that it's, you know, intended to help? Yeah. So, I mean, the initial um, idea for Opportunity Zones came from EIG and it was Kevin Hassett. There's that name again. Uh, and his co-author was Jared Bernstein. The current uh, CEA chair. So, uh, and, you know, it, it had wide bipartisan support. It was a standalone bill for a couple of years before it got, you know, sucked in by, you know, into, into Tiksha, you know, thanks to Senator Scott. Um, and it was interesting because something that had wide bipartisan support suddenly became like known as a Trump thing because it was part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and it, it hadn't been. And so it has sort of um, got like a little bit of a, a partisan aura around it. And it shouldn't because everybody should want this policy to work. Everybody should want to get that capital that's been sitting on the sidelines into productive uses. Um, and, and, it, and you know, in terms of evidence, there's been, uh, you know, it's, it's still a young policy, but the evidence that we've seen is that it's gotten, you know, billions, billions of dollars. I mean, the, when I was in the White House, we did an analysis. It was, I think we found it was 75 billion. Um, you know, that was early on. So that was a projection, but um, others have found less, but it's still getting money off the sidelines into these distressed communities. Um, and, you know, it's been criticized as only going to like the richest of the poor areas. Um, and, you know, we've seen evidence, you know, GAO, Treasury actually just put out a, a, a paper on it, you know, the Biden Treasury, where it found that, like, actually, it's going to more of the bottom than the top. Um, and you're still going to the bottom. <laughs> Even if you're at the top of the bottom, it's still, it's still like, it's still going into a distressed community. Uh, as to the critique that it's <clears throat> property development, I mean, I don't really understand that critique at all. So what? Like people need houses, people need um, stores and, and restaurants. Like you know, it doesn't. It, that, that to me, that doesn't really you know hold water. I know there was criticism of one uh, high-end hotel, I think somewhere in Oregon, and so that was highly criticized. The project actually didn't go through. 
Uh, but, you know, I sort of laughed about it because um, I worked at, you know, the World Bank, which is the world's largest development bank. And I cannot tell you how many projects uh, the bank funds that are, you know, high end hotels. <laughs> that's that's, you know, that can be that can have good economic impact. Right. You've got construction jobs. You've got like, you know, permanent jobs, reception, bellhops. You've got restaurants, you've got cooks and all that. So, I mean, that is considered economic development. So, you know, I think uh, I, I, there's some new legislation to tweak uh, opportunity zones to do better reporting. I mean, it's certainly not a perfect law, but, um, but it's, it's, it's done well. It's done much better than new markets tax credit, which is a lot less flexible. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think it, it, uh, I, I wish it, I wish the politics would just fall away and, uh, and, you know, we could do something where we're using some good you know, productive capital into these areas that sadly have been left behind and they need it. That's well, uh, fascinating. And it's so interesting to hear from you know, someone who's, uh, you know, working at EIG, uh, the Economic Innovation Group, which essentially set everything in motion for Opportunity Zones to become law across the U.S. And here we are just about five years on. Well, this has been such an interesting conversation, DJ. It's been a real honor and a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, John. Today, our guest was DJ Norquist who is the Executive Vice President of the Economic Innovation Group and the former U.S. Executive Director of the World Bank. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. Baby, you give me-